Hi, I'm Ian Abernethy and you're listening to Tim Smith on the Kung Fu Podcast. If you're a listener to this podcast, it's safe to say that you have an interest in the modern day practice of the traditional martial arts. Therefore, you may enjoy my own podcast, the imaginatively titled Ian Abernethy Podcast. You can find it in all the usual places and at ianabernethy.com. That's I-A-I-N-A-B-E-R-N-E-T-H-Y dot com. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what Kung Fu Podcast is all about, and I'm your host, T.W. Smith. Well, I'm going to make a real effort every Sunday morning to start it off just like this. Good coffee and to sit down and make some recordings. It is by far one of the best times to come out to do some recording. If this is your first time to Kung Fu Podcast, welcome. You are in the audience as some of the finest in martial artists in the world. Folks like the gentleman who introduced the program today, Ian Abernathy, who I can tell you that if you ever get a chance to take one of his seminars, you will come out of there with months, if not years, worth of work and some ways to relook at your training and your practice that would benefit you or any of the students that you may work with. This episode is built around Agent for Action Kai Morgan's article titled Seven Ways Martial Artists Are Unique as Physiotherapy Patients. When I initially promoted this podcast, I put it down as eight reasons that would make a martial artist a unique clinical patient. And because I have been doing some work, if you don't know, I still work in the clinics and a lot of times see patients. I had some work recently in a clinic that actually contributed to this. And even since then, I had two more reasons. So instead of the seven that Kai first has in her excellent article. I had added one, and then I've added two more. So I'm going to be sharing with you 10 reasons that martial artists make unique clinical patients. Before I do, I want to introduce to you in this program a service and a friend. The friend, his name is John Connell. He is a black belt recently in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but he's also the creative and professional mind behind GroundSharkPrints.com. One of the cool things about this is John just lives a couple of miles from me. I went over to his house. We sat down. I got to tell you, he is amazingly talented. You're going to see me posting up some of his stuff here at Kung Fu Podcast and as well as on the websites and sharing with you some real creative thoughts and things in regards to the messages behind martial arts as well as some of his incredible talent. You got to go by and check out some of his work at GroundSharkPrints.com. Let's go ahead and get ready and explore the important reasons that make martial artists unique clinical patients. We're going to be introducing two physiotherapists. One is named Chris Tack. The other is Rob Tyler. And they're making a presentation to an audience of other therapists, not to martial artists per se, but they're talking with other healthcare providers about the unique challenges that treating martial artists and combat sports practitioners bring to the table when they get injured. Both of these physiotherapists hold rank in traditional martial arts and have also a substantial experience in combat sports. Each have a specific 
clinical interest and expertise in treating martial artists and combat sports practitioners. At the end of the podcast, I'll give you all the details about where you can find Chris Tank and Rob Tyler. They were doing this presentation on their own podcast that Kai happened to listen to, and she took notes. And what you're going to hear are her notes from that podcast. Just remember that you are not the initial audience to this podcast. They're talking from the viewpoint of one practitioner to another group of practitioners. So I thought it'd be great for you to have an opportunity to reflect on their insights as they shared their opinions to their professional audience. The first reason that make martial artists unique is that they often fiercely resist taking a break from their training to let an injury heal, more so than any other type of sports person. Like other sports, traditional martial arts and combat sports can be addictive, primarily due to the release of endorphins. Chris and Rob explained that many martial artists have invested years or decades into their training and have a lot of themselves channeled into that sport. They continue sharing that many people train for self-improvement or meaningful personal reasons such as wanting to stand up to bullies or becoming more confident, healing from a trauma, or to overcome other challenging life circumstances. For all of these reasons... If a martial artist cannot train, they can lose their sense of self and show higher levels of anxiety and depression when they're not training as compared to people from other sports. On a personal note, I can tell you without a doubt, if I don't get my chance to practice my martial arts, you're not going to like me, for sure, because I don't even really like myself when I don't get to practice. So it's not hard to get on board. Traditional martial artists and combat sports practitioners tend to resist taking a break. Chris and Rob explained that that means that the first clinical appointment is therefore critical. If a physiotherapist simply tells a martial artist not to train for any indefinite amount of time, the patient, which is you, is likely to ignore them and walk away. However, If a therapist can manage expectations right from the start and map out a clear path to recovery with the practitioner, for example, in terms of speed and or intensity of training, or building up certain other variables, the practitioner is more likely to engage in the therapeutic process. Well, if I step back, managing expectations is something as a martial arts instructor that we do all the time for our students, isn't it? You know, ideally teach them and share with them and try to expect from them how to move forward in a progressive manner, keeping things simple, learning how to move, for example, understanding applications, how to keep themselves safe as well as their partner. But managing expectations is something that's really important no matter what you get ready to do when you're working with folks. Because we know unrealistic expectations are the paved road to disappointment and regret. Now, Kine continues in her notes that when you're treating a martial artist, you're trying to manipulate the rehab to return to some form of their training just as soon as possible, which as a therapist, you may not necessarily focus on that point with other athletes. Many times, other types of athletes are very happy to have time away from their event. So, for example, a therapist could say something like, Well, I expect that this is going to take X amount of time, 
but I'm also very much on your side of trying to get you back into training just as soon as possible. In the meantime, while we're waiting for this, we can do a few things, which is effectively an early return to your training. Now, I'm going to give you some things that are going to be very specific about what you can't do for now and give you some alternatives to it. We're here at the Quoon. In the past six months, we had a student who tweaked his knee, and instead of coming in here to practice, he would come in and watch, and he acted as another set of eyes to help some of the other students. There are usually some things that we can do, even if it's just cheerleading, to keep ourselves involved in the practice. The second reason that martial artists can be unique patients is that martial arts in general can be a hotbed for pseudoscience. I'm going to take a moment because that prefix pseudo seems to show up a lot, whether it's in magazines or with therapists or social media, whatever. You'll see this pseudo-cure, pseudo-medicine, pseudo-science, whatever it is, pseudo-this or that. In the dictionary, it basically means it's not genuine. Synonyms for pseudo are bogus, deceptive, misleading, or insincere. So it sounds like to me that the intent of this prefix, pseudo, is that something is purposely misleading or is promoting something that is phony or fake. I don't take pseudo in my mind when I hear it just because I can't explain it, then it's pseudo. Or if it doesn't work each and every time, then it's pseudo or false or misleading. I don't think of it as a sham when that happens. Now, I do believe that if you're promoting something that you know isn't going to work, for example, providing something with the intent of ripping someone off or with phony goods or just purposely misleading them and don't care, that is a sham. That is pseudo in my mind. And if martial arts is a hotbed for pseudoscience, I'm going to give you some other areas that are full of pseudoscience, if that be the case, and give you some things to chew on. Let me pose this question to you. You have two options. One, in theory, this procedure will make sense. And, of course, it makes the clinic or the therapist or the doctor quite a bit of money. And in the other, it doesn't make sense. And it's nearly free. Through double-blind research studies, both approaches are found to be about equal in both short-term and long-term effectiveness. So we're, you know, about 50%. Are either of these options a sham, or are they both a sham? Because martial arts, in my mind, is a results-oriented science. Did I get him where I needed to be? Did I get home safe? Did I protect people I care about? It is about my results, as well as staying inside the means of which guide me, for example, state law. In this example, are either of these two options for you a sham? It's important for you to consider this because neither of these were done with the intent to harm the receiver, you, and both of them were delivered with the hope of being successful. Now, does that make it a pseudo-cure? If it does, that's exactly what has happened in several types of surgical interventions, where the surgery is done or it is dramatized as done. The patients in both cases, whether they receive the surgery or not, report being better. And in some studies, the people who didn't get the surgery tend to be better than those that actually got the real surgery. For example, in 1994, a surgeon named Bruce Mosley had 10 middle-aged men needing knee surgery. 
and they didn't want to be jammed up rocked in a wheelchair at middle age. Dr. Mosley was the surgeon for the Houston Rockets for the basketball team, and that place was just, just a mile up the street from where I was, uh, had my outpatient clinic there. In the double-blind study, neither the patients nor the surgeon nor the surgeon staff knew what was going to happen in the end, whether they're going to do the real surgery or if they're going to imitate doing the surgery. In Dr. Mosley's study, both types of patients reported getting better. In another surgical study done years later on cardiac heart pain, or usually referred to as angina, this particular diagnosis indicates a diminished blood flow to the heart, with the symptom being a clenching pain or that feeling like an elephant is sitting on your chest. The doctors were to, quote, make small incisions in the chest and tie the two arteries to try and increase blood flow to the heart. It was a popular technique, and 90% of the patients reported that it helped. But when Cobb compared it with the placebo surgery, which he made the incisions but did not tie off the arteries, end quote, the placebo operations proved to be just as successful. In my mind, we can't have it both ways. Either the patients had pseudo-illnesses, which obviously they didn't. Somebody did a test and uh, they had real symptoms. Or those were pseudo-cures. Or they both had valid approaches for a valid illness, even though they were different. The other thing that I know of for sure is that complications after a placebo are always much, much less than a deep surgical intervention. My point is, is that when we're talking about pseudosciences and martial arts, and remember, they're talking to another group of therapists, they tend to use the term pseudo as something that puts a cloud over any procedure that doesn't fit what they believe to be true, or they can't explain it, or it doesn't follow what they do in their system. In this example, they're going to explain that many traditional martial arts are rooted in Far Eastern cultures, which leads to some Western practitioners absorbing fanciful and exotic ideas about healing. Movies can be a rich source of this fantasy. For example, the iconic scene in Karate Kid, where Daniel is healed by Mr. Miyagi's magic hands. They continue by saying that combat sports practitioners are much less likely to pursue overly mystical or alternative remedies. And by that, I'm assuming what they mean is as compared to traditional martial artists. I'm also going to speak to some of the other things that a sports practitioner is likely to pursue in a little bit. However, one of the things that a combat sports practitioner may run into is what is called therapist hopping. We deal with this in the clinics all the time, doctor hopping. Searching for that one special clinician or technique that's going to fix their complaint and get them back onto the mat or into the ring. Because martial artists and combat sports practitioners are, quote, real people who want to get back to their sport as soon as they can by any means they can, end quote. As such, they can be vulnerable to embracing treatments such as the fascial distortion model, which doesn't have a clinical evidence base and may even be harmful to some patients. So I want to take a minute. Remember, we practice as much as we can being the prosecution and defense. And by prosecution, they just threw the fascial distortion model under the bus and referred to it as some sort of pseudo type of therapy. So let's see if we can issue any defense for it. There is a training facility located in Irving, Texas, and they have seminars where if you're a specialist or something, you can go down there and train. It looks like those uh, sessions are going to run you anywhere from $500 to $1,200. 
It is a treatment model in which virtually all soft tissue injuries or musculoskeletal complaints are viewed through one or more different types of alterations to the body's connective tissues. They interpret the problem through the patient's verbal and physical descriptions. They couple that with the mechanism of injury and relevant orthopedic tests. That's what leads the practitioner of their particular model of treatment to the proper form of soft tissue treatment. In their distortion model, they identify problems described as trigger bands or continuum distortions or cylinder distortions. They also have a list of high-level organizations that have and continue to use their models and their training. For example, the New York Yankees, the Los Angeles Dodgers, the LSU Tigers, the Los Angeles Clippers, and many others. Let me share with you very quickly something from behind the curtain of the clinical world. First of all, it is not unusual for some specialty to throw another specialty under the bus, as if their approach was always reliable, and it could never be harmful. Every physician type or therapist type that I've never ever known of has the ability to help some people and not help some people. And in almost all cases, whether you're looking at therapy, physician's treatment, or surgery, or drugs, they can do harm to some in the long run. As I'm working with patients, I'm always very clear about reminding every person I work with that the only difference between a pharmaceutical medicine and poison is dose. So pseudo or not, how many pharmaceutical medicines do you know of that does not have a potential or in some cases fatal side effects? They can do harm. So as we return back to the conversation, remember that they were saying that the combative sports players will occasionally push the envelope to find healing mechanisms. They also say, the martial artist may have also strong beliefs about what they need to heal, which may contradict the physiotherapist's own scientific views and training. Rob adds that for traditional martial arts practitioners, this can be complicated by the special role of the sensei, sifu, or the master. Students may trust their teacher or coach as a kind of guru or parent figure, more so than in most other types of sports, and that relationship can be strongly influenced and guided by their belief system. However, Rob advises the therapists that even if they believe the student's beliefs are clinically unsound or even counterproductive or dangerous, it can be unhelpful and alienating to steam in and contradict them as a scientific expert. As with any client, it's important for the therapist to make every effort to understand the patient's own view of their training and their injury and what it means to them and not dismiss that patient's position without really trying to understand it. So now that is an excellent position by these therapists. They may not necessarily understand what the patient is talking about, whether they're using some sort of herbal approach or maybe they're using acupuncture or something else that they don't believe in. But you don't want to throw the patient under the bus and leave them hanging and getting them upset because now you got no chance to treat them and help them. It's also important to remember that science doesn't cover everything. It does the best it can, and ideally, 
applies a non-prejudicial approach. Explain all it can, leave the rest alone. When you're dealing with an individual and not just analyzing some statistical pool, you must account for and respect an individual's belief if you want to make your treatment effective. And that is what is taught at the Harvard Medical School as well. If you really want to apply the scientific method globally, here is what the research has demonstrated. That practically every provider since the start of time, whether it was a witch doctor or shaman using leeches or a priest dunking people in a sacred lake, every provider has a historical evidence of success and failure. And at least with the priest dunking you in the water, if it doesn't work, there's no additional harm done. Over the course of time, there's been three things shown that have to be present for an effective treatment and restoration of health by a provider for it to occur, irregardless of which one you go to. First is that the provider must believe in the patient. That's why that step here about not dismissing the patient is so important. It's also something that's much harder today because a physician here in the U.S. is trying to say if you're a general practitioner on average 21, 23 patients a day just to keep the doors open. You don't have a lot of time to go through and sit down and get to know people, and that can become a problem. The provider doesn't have time in many cases to get to know the patient. The Guardian writes in 2013, quote, You'd be surprised how many perfectly healthy patients believe that they're ill, end quote. And another article titled, Why Don't Doctors Believe Women in Pain? So the first step is, is that the provider must believe in the patient. The second is that the patient must believe in the provider. And the third step that must be there is that both must believe that the treatment that is going to be done is going to work and it's sound for them. If those three things exist, the chances of a good outcome go up really high. Which this leads us to the third reason that martial arts is a place that you're going to find some unique patients. And that is, although all martial arts and combat sports may differ some, there are some core transferable components across all of them. One of the therapists from the audience is going to ask a question. Should a provider require a basic knowledge of martial arts or combat sports to help them treat patients, say, for example, from YouTube? The therapists respond, While a general awareness can be very helpful to engage the patient, understanding their specific art or style in detail would be very difficult. This is because there's so much variation between the arts, and as we know, each one takes years, if not decades, to learn the nuances of it. So the physiotherapist advised the audience that the best way to approach this is to understand the core, transferable components of all the martial arts and ask their patient, the client, these types of questions. For example, stance. How do you stand? How long do you stand? What's the position of your center of gravity relative to your feet. The second, how do you use your limbs and at what speed? Third, what is your personal go-to technique? What technique were you doing when you got injured? What kind of agility and flexibility do you need for your type of training? 
So, for example, taekwondo practitioners can be much different than perhaps a wrestler. The next question that a therapist is going to ask any martial artist is, what kind of strength training or conditioning do you do? Some are going to emphasize power and striking power. Others are going to emphasize more about endurance or flexibility. If the therapist will ask their patient these questions, first of all, the patient is going to be interested in engaging with you and appreciate your awareness that there are differences between the arts and the styles. A therapist doesn't need to know all the intricacies of each style because the patient will tell you. And as long as you know how to ask the right types of questions, you'll get the information you want. They continue by adding that while it's impossible to quickly gain a detailed understanding of any given art, it can be helpful for a physiotherapist to have some idea of how an art feels, how to move laterally, how to take someone's balance, and so on. Because these are the types of physical experiences that non-martial artists don't often encounter in everyday life. So in martial arts here at Kung Fu Podcast, we have a term for that that we've studied at least five times here. Martial arts is a corporeal experience. When it comes down to it, you must perform to have the experience. You must fail many times to understand what it feels like. It is the corporeal experience that makes martial arts so appealing to me. Understanding myself through the experience and then again with others and then finding myself again as I go through these processes. Which leads us to number four. Okay, I had to take a little intermission between numbers three and four. So if there seems to be a slight change in the audio, I had to change mics. Here we are, point number four. Martial artists and combat sport practitioners have an unusual relationship with pain and being uncomfortable. As martial artists and combative sports players, pain is part of our training. We become used to being hit, receiving joint locks, and so on. Over time, we therefore become desensitized to some forms of pain and discomfort. This could lead us to ignoring injuries and letting them worsen or compound over time. I made a note that you can see this also in other contact activities, like football, for example, massive collisions. Bill Parcells, one of my favorite head NFL football coaches, used to say that there is a difference between playing hurt and playing injured. I expect a player to be able to play hurt, but never to play injured. Kai continues by writing that on the flip side of that, however, our training can put us very much in touch with our bodies and how they feel. So the opposite could also be true, and we may become better than non-practitioners at noticing and attending to injuries. The therapist explained that hardly anyone who trains in martial arts and combat sports is 100% pain-free at any given time. I think we could all say amen at the end of that one. You've always got minor injuries and nags, but you just get on with what you're doing because that's the type of training that you've entered into. Your tolerance is increased by repeated exposure, and it becomes your mindset. He further explains that on a competitive side, some people will ignore pain because the opportunities, for example, financial opportunities, outweigh the threat. 
Some professional or semi-professionals may need to take part in a fight to maintain their sponsorship. As the physiotherapist, you therefore sometimes have to enter into an adult conversation with the client. How much are you prepared to put up with? And what can we do about it are the sort of things that you may have to talk about. Combat sport practitioners are also different to other sports people and the association with pain because in that particular arena, the opponent is actually trying to hurt them. Now, I made a note here that that's also true in boxing. Trying to knock someone out is pretty much trying to hurt them. And to a large degree in football, at least in the old school versions that I'm used to, when you're trying to hit someone and the term was just to blow them up. This means that the athletes have less control than other athletes in different sports of whether or not they get injured or not. One other thing that Rob, the physiotherapist, points out that is unique to martial artists and combat sports specialists is that we do not generally have what you would call an off-season. It's a year-round, pretty much a lifestyle. Point number five is that a period of injury can be an exciting learning opportunity for martial artists. They point to that as an advantage because martial artists and combat sports practitioners can incorporate so much variety into their training. As one of the guys would say, if you can't run, you can't run. But if you're unable to punch properly for a while, you could choose to spend some time improving your groundwork or maintain your cardiovascular fitness by kicking instead of punching the back. Or there's many other kind of substitute type of things that you could do. If you don't understand martial arts, you may think that it's just one-dimensional. You punch left, you punch right, and kick, but that's not it at all. It can really be an exciting time to explore other elements of your training. They tell the other therapists, you want to empower the patient, the martial artist and the combat sports athlete, and let them lead you by asking them what they feel they're capable of and would like to do. An injury can be an opportunity to work on parts of their game that you're weaker at. There are so many bits that you can incorporate into the rehab. If you can communicate this and let's say focus on head movement or dropping your center of gravity because these are important elements to you, the patient is going to be happier and they're going to see their rehab in a totally different way. As far as what we do here at the Quone, I have a couple of things that we work on. For example, if someone has injured a knee or a leg, something in the lower body, then we will spend more time doing uh, mind and body work, imagery work. They will emphasize hand-eye coordination work. If they've gotten injured in their upper body, for example, Chris is going to have uh, shoulder surgery on his left side for a rotator cuff injury that's been hurting him for many, many years. And he's going to be out for several weeks. But during that time, we've already laid out a plan for him to go through certain footwork drills while his arm is in the sling. He's got some single-hand drills for his collie stick, single-hand work with his long staff, then also some light to moderate work on restrictive creativity work. So, for example, can you get up off the floor or can you practice getting down onto the floor with one arm and getting back up? The physiotherapist experts explain to their audience, remember that these are other therapists and types of caregiving staff, that to be a martial arts or combat sports instructor in most schools, all you need is a certain degree of a black belt and perhaps an instructor's course 
maybe a first aid certificate, or even a safeguarding check. But teaching status isn't generally regulated. They also tell these therapists that it can be an unhelpful or even dangerous for people who are not fitness professionals to teach these arts to others. One of the therapists say, any fool can make you tired. That doesn't mean they're making you fit. So people who are a novice or completely unexposed to the martial arts can rock up to an unregulated environment and hand over money to be trained dangerously. For example, people who are unfit may end up pushing themselves too hard. They go on to add that unless you're paying for one-on-one tuition, you're often training alongside all ages and abilities, a blanket training regiment regardless of needs, and that in itself can be dangerous. I would totally agree with that. This is an area that could be a very high risk for problems and injuries if you don't somehow separate people not just by their rank, but by their general fitness and fitness abilities. You you might get by with it, however, it's extremely risky. It's part of the reason that my facility is set up with large rooms and then smaller rooms so that I can separate students based on their either fitness levels, their abilities. So, for example, if I have a stroke victim working inside, that they can work with other people at a certain level, and then they can move back in and out of a larger group class based on what we're trying to do. But this risk isn't just in the traditional martial arts area. They go on to say that competitive MMA can be especially risky. Although there's often much more fitness-related training and information made available to the MMA students than those that are in the traditional martial arts. At this point, they make a plug for one of their uh, comprehensive resources titled Evidence-Based Guidelines for Strength and Conditioning in Mixed Martial Arts. Then they continued that the martial arts world is full of excellent clubs, but also many, quote, McDojos, and students won't realize this. This leads to a related risk, especially associated with the traditional martial arts. Students wrongly believe that they can defend themselves and others in dangerous situations such as a knife attack. Such students may end up putting themselves into a dangerous environment thinking that they can handle it. This reminds me that Ando and I were talking one time over the past six months or so, but if you consider this martial arts facility as an entry point, maybe it's just the one that they could get up inside of a certain town or community, and the student uses it as a way of getting introduced to the martial arts and then branches out and learns, like we all learn that certain things are better for us in certain areas and certain things are not as good for us in other areas, it doesn't matter which part of the martial arts you pick, right? If all you ever do is focus on fighting, usually you're a total ass. If all you ever do is practice uh, the philosophy of arts, all you are is typically a thinker and you're not a big doer. It's really a challenge to balance all these wonderful facets of the martial arts. However, we got to get started somewhere. And if a student starts in what someone may describe as the McDojo, they will eventually realize, for example, that they're not getting what they'd hoped for. It's our responsibility, someone like you, someone like me, to be around, to be available. So when that student that has kind of grown past that nest is ready, then you're there to help 
introduce another soul, so to speak, to the martial arts for them. But if those McDojos, for example, are not around for an entry point, the person may not ever get involved. They may not have an interest that gets nurtured and pushed forward to a place to where they're ready for something else. I usually refer to this in my life as the trade-up model. This isn't exactly what I want, but this is exactly all I have at this time, and until I can trade up, then I'm going to hang on to what I got and make the most of it. My job in this scenario is to be available and to do my best to be a good role model and to get myself out there as much as possible so that anyone of any style of traditional martial arts is welcome to come here to continue their training. Trust me, I understand. It's very easy to throw certain types of things under the bus, but if we don't practice a prosecution and defense of as much things as we can, then all we're doing is promoting prejudice. The physiotherapist moved from their McDojo comments in that paragraph, highlighting the risks around the use of illegal substances in some clubs with the MMA and boxing communities. Sometimes it's used to aid from the recovery of injury or to enhance performances. The therapist Chris notes that the martial arts and the combat sports world can attract some strange or unstable people which, to be honest with you, I don't know which world doesn't attract some of that. While these people tend to be whittled out through the dojo's you know, curriculums and stuff along those lines, or by their peers and teachers, they still present risks that we should all be aware of. They can sometimes do more harm to you than you can do to yourself. Point number seven by the physiotherapist is that martial artists can be exposed to unsafe cultures, of machuism and bravado. Good martial arts schools keep their students safe even while they're pushing their boundaries and exposing them to appropriate stressors. But some clubs fail to care for their students in this way, either intentionally or unintentionally, due to a culture of extreme bravado. For example, they explore this expression, black out before you tap out which obviously runs counter to the basic common sense principle of tapping out for safety. They explain that this expression is sometimes misunderstood. It was originally associated with some of the Gracies and referred specifically to blood chokes or strangles. It's used on the basis that there's no scientific evidence showing long-term harm from being put unconscious in this way. However, Rob warns that a lack of evidence doesn't necessarily make these chokes safe. For one thing, medical science is continuing to move forward, which is what I was saying earlier. There's no one static place. It's always moving and picking up new things. And it is possible that some form of harm could come to light in the future. Also, there are risks from the torsional forces that go through the neck, for example, from a person's arm wrapped around your neck and that training in some chokes has been linked to cervical artery dissections, which is a tear in one of the large blood vessels in your neck, which, of course, can lead to a stroke. The therapist Chris points out that there's a risk students might extend this mantra to their other techniques, such as a joint lock, which could be very dangerous. It is better to train smart and not glorify excessive bravado. If you know your technique and you know you're in a bad spot, there's no shame in tapping out because then you get to live another day and come back 
and compete another day. If you tap early, you save that energy reserve to spend later in the training. To spend many minutes fighting a choke that you just can't get out of is very energy demanding because there are going to be certain things that you just cannot get out of. The conclusion of their seven points is that they highlight various risks and other considerations for the health professional's audience for working with martial artists and combat sports participants. Here's a few more things that I added based on my current work and previous experiences. Number eight, martial artists tend to be underinsured or totally non-insurance based. So remember, this audience is all about therapists and all the type of work. Usually, in order to see these sorts of folks on any regular basis, you need insurance. And what you're going to find is that as much as you don't want to think it does, being insured will dictate a lot of times the service that you can get either from the provider or that you can afford to see the provider for. And it's also going to determine how long you're going to get it. That's not always up to the therapist either. Once you are diagnosed, the insurance company in many cases will provide a certain number of therapies and or sessions that you can see these providers for, and then they have to justify needing to see you more, as if everything's going to fit right underneath this little bell curve. Here in the U.S., with our extremely expensive healthcare system, if you need to get help, not having health insurance can really hurt you. Whether you get, for example, the extra x-rays of the lumbar spine, or do you get access to certain equipment or therapies or scans, all these types of things come into play of whether or not you're insured or not. In fact, Valerie Worthington, who's over at Princeton, uh, practices Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, sports psychology, writes, quote, Professional mixed martial arts fighters put their health and well-being at risk every day. Even the most scrupulous and seasoned practitioners may find themselves seriously injured by an errant knee or mistimed shot, not to mention the beating they may take in competition. Unfortunately, the very people who need health insurance the most are some of the most unlikely to be able to afford it. The typical uninsured MMA fighter is young, just starting out, and is also spending hours at a time in the cage and on the mats honing their techniques, as well as working on their strength and metabolic conditioning. This makes for a lifestyle that usually precludes a 9-to-5 gig that would provide full coverage, end quote. Then you also have those that are even, let's say, are getting paid while they're uh, training in the MMA, for example. You have the article by Scott Harris in January 2017 titled, For Love, Not Money, How Low Fighter Pay is Undermining the MMA. This is where he discusses that the pay is so low for the majority of fighters that they can't afford health insurance. They are pros and they're getting paid, but not like the big names. And the UFC has plenty of money, but that's not where their money goes. In an effort to find out more about this problem and a solution, I wrote Jay Augusta, who is the owner of an insurance company that was created for the MMA fighters. I told him about this episode and this problem. He wrote back and said that he had created a modified accident policy in case the athlete was injured in the ring. He said, quote, 
that most insurance companies would not cover injuries in a sporting or professional event. That's where the promoter's insurance comes into play. But often it is a very low amount of coverage with high deductibles, end quote. He went on to tell me that the company that he had created to help solve this problem, he had sold, and unfortunately it failed under the new ownership. For you as the athlete, when you're trying to negotiate a price with a provider in case you don't have insurance or just a low level of coverage, at GuideDoc.com, they write, quote, As a cash patient, you can negotiate rates with the therapist. Ask for a discount equal to average insurance write-offs and let the company know that you'll pay cash up front so that they can save money in the billing process, end quote. Point number nine is an extension of one of theirs, but it was it was kind of tossed in, so I wanted to make sure it was separated. Martial artists have a high risk of being on performance-enhancing drugs, steroids, growth hormones, or pain blockers. At one point in time, the steroid use and drug use in MMA was considered an epidemic. In my younger life, I was around it quite a bit, whether it was something like Winstraw during college football or as a strength coach, and I was administering urine tests to athletes and sometimes Olympic caliber athletes and regularly coming upon it. And the creativity that these people would go to in order to avoid being caught. In fact, in the article, they write that performance-enhancing drugs, PEDs, are the mosquito of the MMA. They ignorantly buzz around in the background, evading capture, But when finally caught, another incessant buzz emerges as the authorities appear powerless to prevent it from sucking the integrity out of the sport. In recent years, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency have made huge efforts to extinguish the mosquito and eradicate the use of PEDs. They have clearly outlined prohibited substances in and out of the MMA competition and enforced compulsory random tests for fighting. A positive test or failure to produce a sample will result in a ban of varying length, end quote. The reason I highlight this point again is that as a therapist, I know going in with working with someone as an athlete, that there's a very good chance that they're either taking some form of a PED or some sort of pain blocker, and there's nearly a 100% chance, and I'll say 97 to give some chance that they're not doing anything, that they are fooling around on the edges of what might be considered a drug one day or some very high-tech form of a supplement, whether they can take it or not. In the traditional martial arts, we don't necessarily have to perform in the same manner. Our standards are much different. I'm not saying better. I'm just saying they're different. We don't have to do what they're doing in that way. We're not always operating trying to get close to having this shot for a big payday. So let's review the nine. Martial artists often fiercely resist taking a break from training to let an injury heal, more so than most other sports people. Number two, the martial arts can be a hotbed for pseudoscience. Number three, although all martial arts and combat sports practices are different, there are some core transferable components across them all. Number four, Martial artists have an unusual relationship to pain and injury. Number five, a period of injury can be an exciting learning opportunity for a martial artist. Six, martial artists can be vulnerable to dangers within their own clubs. Number seven, martial artists can be exposed to unsafe cultures or bravado. Then I added, martial artists tend to be 
uninsured or underinsured, I wanted to highlight and expand upon that many martial arts athletes are on some form of a PED, a pain blocker, or they're playing around on the edges there with their supplements. And to be honest with you, one other thing that you can be assured of that I didn't mention earlier is that they're probably not going to tell you straight out. Even if you ask them, they may tell you no, that they're not taking anything. That reminded me of point number 10. Many of the practitioners in the MMA are also going to be extreme. For example, let's say the dangerous weight gain. They can take things too far. So when you're working with them through rehab, or if you are that practitioner, try to find a balanced approach so that you can get healthy and return to your training just as quickly as possible. In closing, I want to recognize first Kai Morgan and her incredible piece of work. Thank you, Kai, as always. You can find out more about her if you go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash agents of action. And then the therapists that were highlighting and sharing this information, Chris Tack is a specialized musculoskeletal physiotherapist. He's a lead clinician and owner of All Powers Physiotherapy, Rehabilitation, and Conditioning. Rob Tyler is also a musculoskeletal physiotherapist who provides care for patients with neuromuscular, vestibular, and chronic pain conditions. He has a particular specialization in combat sports injuries. So as we close this out, I want to ask you a couple of questions. As a martial artist... Are you actually qualified to lead fitness? Are you at least certified in first aid? How about more specifically, do you at least have some acute athletic injury proficiency? Do you have the gear there to take care of someone if they have an acute injury? It is entirely possible that you could do more damage than good if you're not aware of someone's not just their skill level, but their fitness as well. You don't want to become some sort of pseudo-fitness instructor. If you haven't already, you might think about including in your curriculum some form of flexibility, fitness, balance testing, and it would take less than 5 to 15 minutes to administer, but it could give you some ideas. There's plenty of questionnaires that you could also ask. You'll be able to find the references in your show notes. Let's march on through the rest of the day. You're going to find the references in the show notes. And as always... I greatly appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be part of your martial arts journey. I'll be talking with you again real soon.